What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wadham. I'm Rachel Wadham, and welcome to Worlds Awaiting, helping children and parents explore the world of literacy. Today, we'll be exploring the worlds of presidents, poetry, and young adult literature. First, I'll be talking with Martha Brokenbrow about her book, Unprecedented. Then I'll talk with Gina Clark about sharing poetry. Our last guest will be Jonathan Alexander, who will talk about his passion for YA literature. Before we leave you, I'll step around the librarian's table with librarians from around Utah to talk about children, books, and life. Along with our interviews, we'll have story time with some Shakespearean sonnets, and we'll hear about some presidential book preferences. But before all that, let's take a glimpse into my world. Today, while we visit here at Rachel's World, I'd like to tell you about my favorite president, Teddy Roosevelt. Since I was a little girl and did my first research paper on Roosevelt, he has been my favorite. So it's no surprise that I read every biography about him that I can get my hands on. Happily, there are lots out there, and especially some great ones for children. One of my personal favorites is You're On Your Way, Teddy Roosevelt by Judith St. George and illustrated by Matt Faulkner. This book, with Faulkner's cartoon-style illustration, presents the history and the people from the young boy's viewpoint, as St. George describes Roosevelt's triumph over debilitating asthma and his success as an athlete and a student. St. George never minimizes Roosevelt's struggle, and one particularly memorable picture shows the bespectacled, awkward city weakling being harassed by country bullies. The truths expressed in this book about failure and how to face it will appeal to kids as much as the gentle message about determination and achievement. Another one of my favorites is Bully for You, Teddy Roosevelt by Jean Fritz and illustrated by Mike Wimmer. Jean Fritz is one of my all-time favorite authors of children's biographies, and her book about Roosevelt is no exception. In this book, she presents an irresistible portrait of this unique, larger-than-life American president. Roosevelt comes alive through such telling details as the clothes he wore. She says, ever the dandy, he strutted through his stint as New York City's police commissioner in pink shirts and a black silk cummerbund with tassels reaching to his knees. She also talks about the lively games he played with his children and makes observations like, Teddy couldn't get along without a rocking chair. Even when he sat down to rest, he liked to feel that at least his chair was on the go. Fritz also chronicles Roosevelt's political career and his impact on the nation through his work in conservation, legislation, and tax reform. This thoroughly entertaining biography can be summed up in one word, bully. So if you want to know more about this colorful, idiosyncratic president, or if you have your own favorite president, we here at Rachel's World suggest that you take a trip to your local library and check out some great presidential biographies. Rachel's World. 
Politics and history go hand in hand, but the dynamic between the two can be difficult to navigate. Today, I'm on the phone with author Martha Brokenbrow, who has just produced a new biography for children and young adults called Unprecedented. Welcome, Martha. Thanks so much for having me. Martha, I just finished reading Unprecedented, and it is a wonderful piece of work that I find very intriguing. So to start out, why did you decide to tell this story, particularly of our current President Donald Trump? And why do you think it was important to tell it particularly for a younger audience? So it is a biography of the nation's 45th president. And I got the idea to write it as I was finishing up a biography of one of our founding fathers, Alexander Hamilton. So among the many things that Hamilton said that stuck with me, uh, he warned the nation about the coming of demagogues. Demagogues are people who use emotion to whip crowds into a frenzy and to sow confusion and, and chaos, and they do it for their own ends. And Hamilton saw it as a threat to democracy. And as I watched what was happening in that crazy 2016 election, I thought it might make an interesting book. And when Trump won, I realized that there was a really strong possibility that a traditional presidential biography would be written. And what I mean by that is bios of presidents for young readers tend to focus on the positive. And you can certainly look at Trump's life through a positive lens. He built lots of buildings. He made lots of money. Um, but the truth is actually a lot more complicated than that. And I wanted to tell young readers the truth about the 45th president, even if it meant that I would have to do something that hasn't been done before and write a critical biography of a sitting president for young readers. That is one of the things that I appreciate so much about how you approach this work. When you say that you're writing the truth and that the truth is complicated, that is something I very much saw in this biography and that came through, that that you take a journalistic kind of stance where you're writing very clearly from from that kind of truth element. But there also is obviously a balance there that you bring with criticism on on both sides. How difficult was that, particularly for a, an, in a seated president and someone that is, that is very still controversial, particularly among adults? What kind of challenges did you face as you wrote, in, particularly in this new way? Well, it, it was a challenging project because there was a lot to write in a relatively short amount of time. The book covers his whole life, his father's life, even his grandfather's immigration from Germany, it covers Trump's campaign, and it covers the first year and a half of his presidency, all the way through July 22 of, of 2018. And so, um, as we can recall, the first couple years of his presidency have been full of breaking news items, and it feels like the ground is always shifting beneath us. And so, my challenge was to identify the sort of signature patterns of Trump's life, what does he value? What does he want? Um, what have his choices led to? Um, and in identifying those key patterns, then I would kind of know what was the right thing to focus on, because there is certainly more that happened than could be included in any biography. And what I wanted to do 
was offer a faithful portrait of this controversial man. Um, it wasn't a concern to me that there were going to be some people who wouldn't like it. Um, my concern was simply to be as fair and accurate as possible. In the introduction to the book, you you express that where you say, this is the way I'm going to approach it and, and that I want to be as fair and accurate as possible. And, and I honor that with you as an author, particularly with both of these biographies that you've mentioned with your Alexander Hamilton biography and your Donald Trump biography. Both both men had their controversies and and things that <laughs> that that weren't always as as clear as we would like them to be and and oftentimes stuff that is hidden or stuff that is particularly with Alexander Hamilton that might have been kind of erased from his experience so so we could make him more of a of a paragon <laughs> in long those ways and that is one of the things I love about how you approach this is that you approach it from from the good and the bad and you you grapple with that complexity in in a very honest and real way why particularly do you think for this audience for this young adult audience particularly with these two men that grappling with that type of stuff is is appropriate and developmentally needed for that type of audience i actually think it's incredibly important to tell kids the truth a lot of times adults who are really well-intentioned will say oh gosh you know we want to shield our kids from that we want to protect them and i can definitely understand the impulse to protect children here's the thing though our kids are already living in the world alexander hamilton cheated on his wife you know it was harmful to the family surely there are children who've experienced that um, you know their parents have had infidelities excuse me, marriages have been tested. Why wouldn't we want to confront that in literature? So so our job as adults is not to protect children from every aspect of reality, but to acknowledge it and to help them work through it when they experience life's difficulties. One of the things that books do is give people a chance to empathize with others going through other experiences. And so even if they haven't experienced it, they can practice those emotions and those responses so that they're fully ready to enter the world by the time they're adults. That sense of empathy and being able to to see that wider range of things, I think, is so critical and important. I think sometimes as adults, we, we try to hide these things from children thinking we're protecting them. But in the end, I don't think we're really protecting them. And particularly for our children in this day and age, Figures like Trump are in the news and talked about in ways that that could be very confusing to children, especially, or even teens. I know in reading your biography, there was a lot of things that actually were cleared up for me. <laughs> I'm, even as an adult, I'm just like, oh, so that's who that is, or, or I understand how that fits in, because it is so confusing. And one of the things I particularly loved about Unprecedented is you have a great deal of back matter in the book, where you include little snippets of biographies and other types of things to to support the text and narrative that you do um, in the front with a timeline and other kinds of things. So why did you add that wonderful, rich back matter to to develop the story or develop the, the context of the biography even more? Well, it's a complicated story, and it covers more than a century of history. And so I wanted to help anchor readers in that. Another thing that I did is put Trump's story entirely 
um, in chronological order. This isn't something that other Trump books that cover his presidency have done. They tend to be more thematic, but I think for young readers, having you know this happened and then this happened and then that happened, that sequence is important for comprehension. And so it was really all meant to support readers so that they can get a really faithful and responsibly sourced and transparent account of this is who the president is, um, you know, and here's how I know. That I really think was a perfect way to do it, that it provided this wonderful context from back to front and and allows the reader to see things in, in a wide range of ways, which which makes this such an amazing construction of a book. My one issue is that because it isn't ended yet, you, you end very much on the cliffhanger, <laughs> which I know you had to do. <laughs> it's a, it just it ends, um, which which is fabulous, and and the way you do it. But but my question for you is: Are you are you going to continue? Is this something that you're going to follow? Is there going to be like a volume two that will that will continue following it and provide this kind of commentary in this really refreshing, wonderful way that you've done? Well, I would love to write a second book, and you're right; it does end. You know, with no spoilers, <laughs> it does end on a cliffhanger. Yeah. I I did carry it longer than a traditional presidential biography. A lot of them only go through the first hundred days. And that wouldn't have worked in Trump's case. Um, Too many things that have been sort of signature crises of his presidency would have been left out. Um, I would love to write a second volume. And I have an idea of what I would like it to, to be. And really now it's just a matter of continuing to follow the news, continuing to understand the story as it develops and seeing what happens. But it is an incredibly fascinating and fraught time in American history. With, without a doubt. And I am so grateful that you have taken the challenge and moved forward with this biography. I think it is so important for our children today to, to see a wide range of opinions and a wide range of perspectives. And I really appreciate what, what you've brought, particularly from this biography. So if our audience... Um, is, is ready to read a great biography, we would really suggest that that you run out and grab Unprecedented or Alexander Hamilton and maybe get some new perspectives. It, it really adds to, to your understanding and depth. So thank you for writing so well. I really appreciate that. Well, thank you. Martha Brokenbrow is the author of a novel called Divine Intervention. She is also the author of a biography, Alexander Hamilton Revolutionary, and most recently, Unprecedented. Next, in honor of Valentine's Day, we'll have some Shakespearean sonnets in our story time. So let's take a listen. Sonnet 130 by William Shakespeare. My mistress' eyes are nothing like the sun. Coral is far more red than her lips red. If snow be white, why then, her breasts are done. If hairs be wires, black wires grow on her head. I've seen roses damasked, red and white, but no such roses see I in her cheeks. And in some perfumes is there more delight than in the breath that from my mistress reeks. I love to hear her speak, yet well I know that music hath a far more pleasing sound. I grant I never saw a goddess go. My mistress, when she walks, treads on the ground. And yet, by heaven, I think my love is rare, as any she belied with false compare. 
Sonnet 65 by William Shakespeare Since brass, nor stone, nor earth, nor boundless sea, but sad mortality, or sways their power, how with this rage shall beauty hold a plea, whose action is no stronger than a flower? Oh, how shall summer's honey breath hold out against the rackful siege of battering days, when rocks impregnable are not so stout, nor gates of steel so strong, but time decays? O oh, fearful meditation, where, alack, shall time's best jewel from time's chest lie hid? Or what strong hand can hold his swift foot back? Or who his spoil of beauty can forbid? O oh, none, unless this miracle have might, that in black ink my love may still shine bright. Poetry is meant to be shared, but sometimes we miss the full range of what poetry can be. Today, I've got professor and poet Gina Clark in the studio with me. Welcome, Gina. Hi. I am so excited to chat with you today. You have a really strong background um, in poetry and particularly in the academics of poetry. And I, I know that sometimes, particularly for our listeners out there, it's that academics of poetry that makes makes it a little bit hard to get into this beautiful form of literature. But the reality is there is some beauty and there is some wonder in studying poetry and understanding its form and understanding its application in maybe a more academic way, not necessarily a full academic way, like getting a doctorate in poetry or something. So let's talk a little bit about why do you think that kind of study of poetry is important? So let's start there. Why is the study of poetry at that more deep level important? Well, I think that a great poem has many layers of meaning to offer. It has much to offer in terms of, of depth, uh, we were speaking about Leslie Norris. Um, he used to tell a story about, uh, well, it was a teaching story that when he wrote poems, he would try to imagine as his audience a little old man in Chicago is how he phrased it. I remember in some of my poetry workshops with him. And the little man, old man in Chicago, he said, was not particularly bright. He certainly wasn't an academic. And he said that when he wrote his poems, he always tried to think of that little old man in Chicago as his audience. And that little old man had to at least be able to understand the surface of the poem. He had to understand what was basically happening. Now, he may not get all the depths, but he at least had to understand the surface. And even though I, I recognize that some poets in contemporary poetry do not adhere to that rule of making a clear surface of the poem, I tend to, to believe that that's important, that you need to be able to access at least the surface meaning. However, implicit in that story is the idea that there are depths, that there is more to understand, there is more to grasp, there is more to understand in terms of uh, word meaning, um, uh, what the shades, the 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 etymology, the the uh, the the uh, the oral qualities of of a particular word, um, you can find more and more riches the more you dig, and that 
I think is in some ways a measure of a really good poem. <laughs> some poems don't stand up to that kind of digging. You know, what's on the surface is all it has to offer. But as you learn a little bit more, as you look a little bit more closely at the poem, experience it on more than one level, there's the experience of just hearing it read and that kind of visceral initial experience with a poem uh, that is great. I think that's wonderful. I think that's the first place you've got to go. But then to take that poem and to say, well, let's look at it line by line. Let's look at what this word means. And 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 can I see any repetition or patterns that are happening in the poem in terms of the language that's being used? Um, I like actually what um, in this Silver Pennies book that was my grandmother's, a very old, old book, a book for children, this uh, 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 anthologist, Blanche Jennings Thompson, she she says this, the quickest way to kill any possible interest in a poem is to say, today we are going to learn a poem named Barter by Sarah Teasdale. You may all sit up straight in your seats and listen. <laughs> and, you know, we, we, when, we're, when we're asked to just kind of sit and passively engage a work, you know, I think we turn off. And I think especially children today are going to turn off because uh, they have so many other things to, to be distracted by. But what this uh, Blanche Jennings Thompson suggests is to establish a mood by music, a picture, a story, another poem perhaps, or sometimes just skillful questions leading up to the poem, to the thought in the poem to be read. Then be sure to take time at the end of the reading for an interesting discussion, to actually engage the ideas, to talk about the poem with someone. I think that's a great way to learn a poem, to, to really get at the depths of it, is to talk about it, see what somebody else sees in a particular poem, um, what resonates with them. All of these things are important. Yeah, you know, I I love that sense of this being more of a conversation because it really is that way. I think sometimes particularly with literature or even with, you know, fine art or music, we we tend to think, okay, it's just being given to me, but it really is a conversation between you and the producer of that piece. Mm-hmm. And then even the experience you share with others or the conversation you have with others as as part of that kind of whole piece. So this really is more than than just a passive experience. It's about this kind of conversation that we're all trying to build here. So, you know, as a teacher, what kind of questions do you ask your students about poetry? And how can we learn from those questions that you might ask that would help us start these kind of conversations with our families or with our children? Well, I, I think, you know, you can start out pretty broadly, you know, well, what's, what do you, what do you think? What's your response to this? What do you like? What do you not like? <laughs> I think that's another thing that's important to do is to acknowledge that there may be things in the, in the poem that you didn't like or that you didn't grasp or didn't understand, right? I, I think also to ask about the sensory response to the poem. What were you seeing? What were you hearing? What were you feeling? What do these kinds of words remind you of? I think, again, just inviting a child, a young adult to, to read the poem aloud, and then even to hear it read aloud, to remove it from the page and say, well, you just listen to me for a minute and and hear how I read this poem. And, and there are different ways to emphasize, different ways to, to uh, direct the voice when one reads a poem. And so all these things prompt a discussion. But yes, I think, like you say, letting poems be uh, a way to start a conversation. You know, the poet uh, Naomi Shihab Nye talks about how the speech between mother and child is a conversation. It's a kind of a, a, rather, a kind of a poem, you know, that that affirmation of, of a mother and child speaking to each other. And poems can be one way to, you know, prompt more of that, that conversation between parent and child. 
kind of moving more towards your role as a mother, how did you build that in your own family? I mean, how did you take this love, this academic love that you built of poetry um, that became, you know, a love that you're trying to now share with with your children that you're mothering? Well, that that's a good question. You know, I have a, a, a daughter who's a sophomore in high school. <laughs> Uh, this might not be the best example. You might uh, find it ironic. I did. She uh, had to, for her sophomore English class, was assigned to write a poem. And she she was really struggling. And so she came to me and she wanted help. And, you know, I, I'm great. I'd love to help you with the poem. This isn't math. I'm, I'm glad to. <laughs> I, can, well, I, I, I can do it. I yes. have experience. <laughs> yes. And sitting with her and trying to get her to write, help her to write a poem I, I was struck by the irony. I thought to myself, I cannot believe that my child <laughs> has so little interest in this particular, so little inclination towards, you know, writing a sort of contemporary style poem. <laughs> and it was a good experience in the end. And I think we were able to connect. But I guess my point in sharing this is that not every child is going to gravitate towards it and grasp it and embrace it in the same way that that we might expect them to Um but yes, I certainly did read poetry to this young daughter of mine, uh, who's now a high schooler, and to all of my children. So I, I think most definitely in those those wonderful, intimate moments when they're small, you know, when you're all curled up on the couch and you're you're reading before nap time or before bedtime, that poetry is something that uh, that definitely deserves a place and can can find a place in that. You know, uh, when you talk about bedtime stories and songs. Um, you know, I I love to share bedtime poems. You know, the, the the same poems that I would practice for my volunteer lap time at at the library. I would practice with my children first as they they go to bed. And there's something calming and soothing about that at those particular moments. That the repetition of the sound and and the the musicality of the language is a lot like a lullaby. And so I think those are great things to do. That uh, maybe uh, add a poem to your nighttime routine. Some Something simple, something um, quiet, something settling, that that could be something that, that is a part of your routine. Children who are a little bit older, who can write, who can read independently, there are lots of fun kinds of games you can play. As a matter of fact, I, I, I have a, a wonderful family. I wouldn't call us uh, literary particularly, <laughs> but... Um, one thing that we have done as a Christmas tradition is we'll have a, a poetry night as part of our Christmas Eve celebrations, <laughs> and everyone will compose a poem. This actually came from my college-age brothers, who uh, this was something that they had done with their friends. And, and, and you know, I'm sure that it, it could uh, take a turn for the, the juvenile and the silly, and it, it did usually. But, you know, choose five or six words and say, okay, everybody has to find a way to put these six words into the poem that you create. And, you know, playing with poetry is, is, is a lot of fun. It's something you can do with your family. We've done that with, with our children, too. And as soon as they're able to actually generate poetry and words and, and write on their own, that's a, a, fun, a fun thing that they can do to practice. So, um, But again, I think exposure is probably the first place to start to actually try to open their minds and their, their, their eyes to the things that poetry can do. Well, and I love that, Gina. I really appreciate that sense that just opening their eyes, but then also understanding that there's going to be 
failures or yes. things where we we don't quite succeed because I think particularly when we feel passionate about something as adults or parents, we try to give that passion to our children. And if they don't feel passionate mm-hmm. about it in the same way we do, we we sometimes define that as as a failure. Yes. Oh no, yes. we failed. Yes. And, yes. But you know, you never know. Maybe when she's in college, mm-hmm. your daughter will say, "Hey, I remember writing this poem," yes. and and maybe yes. it was more about the relationship that you built That's and the time exactly you spent right. together than it was actually about the poem. So, yes. you know, sharing what we love and making it part of our family heritage, but then making sure that we that we accept that these are individuals who have their own thing. So that story, I think, very true, provides us with a great example. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you for your yes. failure and, and helping us to understand how to be better in our own. So yes. I, I appreciate that uh, viewpoint. Thank you so much, Gina, for being with us today. Thank you. Gina Clark is a professor here at Brigham Young University. Now, in honor of President's Day, we present some literary preferences and history about some previous heads of state, brought to us by our student producer, Natalie. From your bright, sparkling eyes, I was undone. Rays you have more transparent than the sun. Amidst its glory in the rising day, none can you equal in your bright array. This is an excerpt from a poem written by our very first president, George Washington, when he was about 17 years old. It's hard to imagine the young founding father, unless it involves a fabricated story about cherry trees. But he and many other presidents were well-versed, well-read, and advocates for literacy. For instance, Thomas Jefferson, our third president, had 6,487 books in his library. He was known to read whenever he had a spare moment, and his collection of books became the foundation for the Library of Congress. Today, the library has over 16 million books in its collection. Jefferson wasn't the only prolific reader. His pen pal, John Adams, had over 3,000 books in his own collection. Lincoln, on the other hand, didn't have as much access to books when he was growing up. He was mostly self-educated and would read any book he could find. He read Aesop's Fables and the Bible while learning to read, and was quoted as loving Shakespeare, particularly Macbeth, during his presidency. He was known as the Poet President, as he also wrote poetry. FDR loved reading Rudyard Kipling, the author of The Jungle Book, and several empirical poems. John F. Kennedy was known for enjoying James Bond novels. This brought more attention to the series, and it's probably the reason it and other spy thrillers are popular to this day. While he might not always enjoy a thriller, Clinton is known to enjoy mystery novels as well as books about history. George W. Bush would have a competition with one of his friends to see how many books they could read in a year. Over the course of two years, he finished 186 books. Across all of the presidencies and decades, most presidents are known to enjoy biographies, histories, and political books. But like anyone, they enjoy a good novel. World's Awaiting, we are passionate about a lot of things. But today, I'd like to focus on one of my personal preferences, young adult literature. I've got author Jonathan Alexander on the phone with me. Welcome, Jonathan. Thank you. Jonathan, this is a very exciting interview for me because you and I share a passion for young adult literature, which I love to share with my listeners as well. So I'm glad that you're here with us today to share that passion. So to start out, why don't you tell us a little bit about what makes you passionate about young adult literature? 
Oh, thank you so much. It's a, it's a great question and one I've been thinking about for a while now because I'll start with a confession. I came to young adult fiction a little bit later in life. I was oh, well into my 30s even and nearly 40 before I started reading a lot of young adult fiction. And I, and I have to admit, this is going to sound terrible, I know, that in the late 90s, uh, when I was much younger and picked up a copy of uh, the first Harry Potter book, uh, because everybody was starting to read it and it was making the rounds, and I thought, oh, you know, I should, should check it out. I started reading it and got through about 60 pages and, and didn't like it and put it down and didn't get back to it. and thought, eh, you know, not for me. That's a bold confession. It's a bold confession, I know, <laughs> for somebody who studies young adult fiction. So years later, uh, about the time the fifth book and the, the sixth book in the series were, were starting to come out, I, I began noticing not only were all of my students reading these books, but all of my friends were reading them, and then increasingly I was being dragged along to uh, parties late at night, at bookstores, uh, to await the release of the next book in the series, and people were showing up in costume, and clearly fully engaged in this world. And then I started hearing about people writing fan fiction, and then people creating other kinds of media about Harry Potter characters and set in the Harry Potter universe, and I thought, you know, I need to be paying more attention, because these were increasingly long, complicated, sophisticated books that people were reading. And as a student of, of writing, uh, of writing studies and literacy studies, I thought, well, if I'm really interested in how people become literate and how they learn to read and use their words to affect change in the world, then I need to be paying attention to what, how, what people are doing with these books and how people are understanding them and how they're enjoying them, but also how they're creating their own media out of them. So I began reading widely in young adult fiction and sort of over time recovered just the sheer joy the love of ludic reading, reading for its own pleasure. I, I'd stay up late at night like many of us used to do when we were kids or reading well into the, into the wee hours of the morning and, and recovered not only that, that sense of the joy of, of reading uh, for, for young audiences, but got a stronger sense of why these books are so important for young readers right now. I love that sense of recapturing just the basic love of reading, because I think sometimes, particularly as professors of literature, professors of the story, professors of writing, we tend to approach things from a very scholarly perspective, where we look to things to be, you know, very highbrow. And we often look down on some of these other kinds of things. And I think sometimes we lose that sense of there really is this basic pleasure to reading. So how do you mm-hmm. think young adult literature did that for you? What, what was it about it that reconnected you to that passion for reading? It's a good question. As, as you well know, there is a lot of pleasure uh, to be had in the, the study of a text, uh, in, in even difficult texts, and in patient, close, careful reading. Those are, are wonderful skills that, that give us uh, new levels of delight in a, in a particular work. Uh, and I think young adult fiction deserves close, careful, critical reading as well. Uh, but what I dis- rediscovered was the, the joy of the series, of the long series, the multiple books that were tracing out a long story arc over 
multiple texts, multiple volumes, sometimes multiple characters, even multiple generations. And, and that's not something we always necessarily get in, in classic literature. Although, to be fair, some of our classic texts, like many of Dickens' novels, were initially serialized. So people were eagerly awaiting the next installment. And I think since so many young adult series are actually series, their, their narratives stretch out over several books, part of the deep pleasure of the narrative is following your favorite characters, uh, following even your unfavorite characters, the villains, through through long stories. And I think it's that serialization which helped me recover a sense of the just the, the joy of, of reading and, and staying up late at night with some of your, your favorite characters and stories. I think that that sense of close reading, when you talk about really going in and deeply studying something that we would do as as those of us that study literature in that way, we would really go deeply into something. And the sense of going deeply into something through a series have very kind of analogous senses to them, because we do go more into depth as we see characters grow and develop over a course of a series. And that would be the same thing we might do if we were doing a really close reading of an individual novel of, you know, how does this character progress? How do these, how do these things develop? So I love that there is that sense of, that we combine those kinds of things. It really is, in some essence, a close reading as we progress mm-hmm. through a longer story. Absolutely. And, and I so appreciate that young people who enjoy these works will learn so much about them and develop theories about why characters do what they do. Uh, that, that's exciting to somebody who values reading as, a, as an activity in the world and of world building. So to see people who are so engaged with a particular world, with a set of characters, that they're, that they're willing to, to debate about them. That, that's lovely. I love that sense of being engaged so deeply in this. And the thing is, though, that there are some... There are some parents and other concerned adults out there that I think may have a little reticence towards that, that they think immersing themselves so deeply or readers immersing themselves so deeply in this world becomes harmful in some way or that it becomes um, so consuming that they're not branching out into better things or other things. So how would you address maybe those kinds of people that are, are talking that there is a negative aspect to being so immersed in these worlds? What's so interesting about reading in general, and I think this holds true for young adult fiction as well, is that reading in, in many ways is a kind of potentially dangerous activity in the sense that when you read, you are invited to see the world through someone else's eyes, and those eyes might be looking at the world differently than you do. So part of what I think we need to do with, with parents is to uh, talk to them about the importance of getting outside of ourselves, of encountering different kinds of characters, different kinds of situations, different ways of perceiving the world. And that that's in and of itself not a bad thing. In fact, that might actually be a very good thing, that if we were actually to approach other people with empathy or sympathy or with some kind of understanding, even when we don't agree with them, it's still important to approach people openly and ask them, how do you see the world? Why do you see the world the way that you do? Reading can be one of the ways that we can, we can do that. Uh, it's one of the powerful ways that we can do that. So 
I, I try to talk to folks about uh, the importance of reading uh, as an openness to the world, even when we have to make decisions about what parts of the world we want to accept or reject. If parents who are concerned about students or, or their young kids getting lost in books, I don't think have much to worry at this particular time because so many books are actually associated with other kinds of media and with other kinds of work in the world. So what's interesting, especially about young adult fiction right now, is that you don't just get the book. You'll also sometimes get films or television shows or games. And increasingly, there's so much effort uh, put into creating spaces for young people to develop their own ways of interacting with books, to talk with other people through various uh, uh, networked forms of communication, to create their own fictions, to create their own media in response to these books. So there's a way in which the reading of young adult fiction is not an isolating event. It's often a social event in which people are actually actively connecting to, with other people to talk about their books. Uh, I'm reminded of sort of the Harry Potter Quidditch teams that have popped up all over uh, university campuses and uh, at Stanford a uh, year or so ago and, and got to see the Quidditch team play. And it's sort of wild and delightful that students had taken the love of a book and it sort of transformed it into an actual social event where they're running around on a field, getting to know each other and, and, and enjoying through enjoying each other through having bonded over this reading experience. So in so many ways, this literature is not about isolating people uh, in, in rooms where they're alone. But it, the drive is often to reach out and to connect with other people about your favorite stories. At least that's that's what I've been seeing. I see that, too. And I really appreciate that social sense that comes from reading. And I think sometimes we forget how powerful that is. I truly appreciate your insights into this topic because it just helps us th see things in a new way. So as we close up our conversation today, Jonathan, maybe mention for us a few young adult titles that have changed your world or help you see the world in a new way. Oh, that's such a great question. So one of my uh, favorite young adult texts is uh, by Sherman Alexie, the uh, Native American writer uh, who turned late in his career to writing young adult fiction, but has produced a marvelous book called uh, Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indian, uh, which is about a young boy uh, who is contemplating leaving the reservation that he has grown up on and going to school down the road at a largely all-white school. And it's a very well-crafted, poignant tale of somebody who's caught between, between two worlds and is trying to figure out how do you navigate uh, coming from uh, of, uh, different cultural perspectives, uh, coming from, in this case, uh, an Indian perspective, and then trying to figure out how to how to navigate uh, a different world outside of the, the reservation. I think it's uh, a kind of narrative that not only educates us about the experiences of, of different people, particularly of Native Americans, but it's also one that many young people can relate to as they themselves uh, move into the larger world and try to figure out how do they navigate their way through it. So it's a powerful, powerful book. Uh, I'll also confess to being a fan of, of a lot of older young adult fiction, and one of my favorites is uh, Harriet the Spy, which I guess is a book that uh, uh, sort of bridges children's middle school and then uh, young adult fiction as well. But I think Harriet's sort of misadventures as she's trying to figure out 
how does she uh, make her way into the larger world? Uh, it remains very powerful and poignant to me. So those are two books that just off the top of my head. As soon as you ask, what am I thinking of? Those are the books I'm thinking of. Well, I appreciate you mentioning Harriet the Spy. That was a pivotal book, particularly for me as a young girl. And it it is one that I have read many, many times, which I can't say of a lot of books because I don't reread books as often as I should. So thank you for bringing back some poignant memories for me as well. Yeah, it's a surprising book. It's one I read as a kid and then recently reread it a couple of times. And and wow, it's good. And, And my hope is that young fans of young adult fiction will recognize the history of these books and uh, the great world of reading out there. Such a broad, vast approach to an audience that has amazing books available, both from years past and currently. Thank you so much, Jonathan, for sharing your passion with us today and help us helping us see the power of young adult literature to open our eyes to great new things. Thank you. Jonathan Alexander is an author and professor at Louisiana State University. Now, join us as we step around the librarian's table to speak with librarians from around Utah about children, books, and life. Today, my student Megan is talking with two librarians from Provo City Library about the best books of 2018. I'm in studio today with two librarians from the Provo City Library. Welcome, ladies. Thanks. Hi, thanks for having us. I am so excited to have you here because at Provo City, you do a really special thing every year. You do kind of a best books event. So Mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about what that event entails and why do you do it? Yeah, so best books is, it's one of my very favorite events. It's probably my favorite event that we do all year. Um, So we do it every February, and we will go through and share our favorite books that came out the year before. So um, guests who arrive can go to two of the three sessions. We have a children's, a teen, and an adult session, and we switch halfway through. Um, And for each session, librarians will share their 50 favorite books that they read for that age group that came out the previous year. Um, So that's happening next week on Thursday, 7 o'clock, on the second and third floor of the library. And we'll have cupcakes. We'll be giving away books. It's a really fun event and such a great way to find new things to read. I love that kind of celebration, right? The celebration of the year past and the celebration of what we've read and that kind of sharing. And, you know, there's refreshments and even better. (laughs) All the good things. All the good things. So, yeah, this sounds like stellar event. So there are some of our listeners that will not be able to attend. Mm -hmm. So, unfortunately, I'm sorry. You won't (laughs) be able to attend. So if they're not, what what, if you were presenting at this fabulous event, what what were some of the books that you would share? Mm -hmm. One that I think really can't be missed is Small Spaces by Catherine Arden. Mm. Um, She has been an exclusively adult author. This is her middle grade debut. So for kids ages kind of eight to 12, um, it is a ghost story in the best kind of way. It's about these kids who get stranded at a farm. There are scarecrows that come to life at night. There's a mysterious warning to avoid small spaces. But it's done in such a way that you can't believe that this caliber of writing is for children. Because I feel like the good author's have been wanting to save themselves for adults, and they're now realizing, no, we want to write for kids. Yeah. The kids are are who's going to be reading these books, mm-hmm. which is awesome. I, I love that when they transition. Yeah. I think that that's really amazing that they can they can bring some of the skill that they've developed in in that to to writing amazing stories for kids. Absolutely, kids stories are amazing. Let mm-hmm. me just say, children's literature 
is rocking. So it's a good thing. So yeah. other other ones. That I think you... small spaces is great. Shana, if you have one, step mm-hmm. in as well. Yeah. I'll throw a few in. Here. Um, yeah, do. Do. <laughs> one of my favorite picture books was Island Born by Juno Diaz. Um, illustrations are beautiful in that one. Mm. Yeah, and it's yeah. illustrated by Leo Espinoza, who actually lives in Utah. He oh, lives very cool. In Park City, I didn't know that. which is very kind of cool. A fun nice connection. Local nice local flair. connection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and Juno Diaz is another author who's written exclusively for adults mm-hmm. until now. First picture um, yeah. book. And he's writing into a, a picture book. So yeah. that's really cool. neat. I love the, the way the culture is represented in that. It's just Definitely. such a wonderful picture book because it it allows us to kind of see experiences in a new way and particularly through the eyes of the child character. It just is delightful to, to see how she's trying to find her place in the world. And mm-hmm. I, yeah, just very unique. So mm-hmm. yeah, that's a good one too. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, Other, I feel yeah. like so – I used to read primarily fiction, but this year has been a big nonfiction year Very for me. Cool. For, so I help out with our adults event. And so I spend the whole year reading new adult releases, fiction and nonfiction. Um, but there have been a lot of nonfiction ones I've really liked. Um, there's one called Women of the Blue and Gray by Marianne Monson. Oh, yeah. Ooh, yeah. That is fun, like pop history, but well-researched. Um, so sh- it's histories of women from all different backgrounds um, in the Civil War. So she even has chapters on Native American women um, as well as the typical Northern and Southern enslaved women that you might hear about. Um, So that one's great. She does a great job with representation, with getting um, her details down, but then she tells these stories in very engaging ways where you definitely don't have to be a historian to enjoy them. That that is where I place the line with with nonfiction (laughs) history. It it has to be a good story. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yep, And they're good topical chapters so you can get through one a night and make your way through the book really quickly. Very cool. So I love it. Fun. Yeah, that's a good one. Any other great nonfiction you read this year? Um, what other ones have I read? There was one that I always mess up the title on, but I think it's called Doing Harm. I read that as well on yes. your recommendation. That's yeah. right. <laughs> Goodreads friends. So yeah, so yeah, way to, way to go. Uh-huh. You recommended and it was well received. So yeah. Yeah. And that one's on um, some of the, the biases that exist against women in the medical mm, field. Um, so as patients, some of the obstacles that you might be coming up against that you wouldn't even recognize. So that one was very interesting and super eye-opening and made me very angry. So if you want a good rage read that will um, – yeah, We need to do better. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it's also empowering. Yeah. It's a great audiobook as well If for mm-hmm. those who prefer listening to reading. Mm-hmm. It's a great audiobook to listen to. It very stays pretty cool. engaging. Yes. I love it. Yeah. Great stuff. All right. What else? We want more. Mm-hmm. More, more, more. Um, we can't not talk about Mercy Suarez. Changes mm. Gears. Yeah. Medina. It's our Newberry winner this year um, for children's. It's – an excellent book so it explores a kind of just a normal girl who lives in florida um and she goes to a school that is well outside what her family can afford she has to do extra community service to make up for it um and while she's kind of growing up over the course of her sixth grade year she realizes that her grandfather has alzheimer's and that's why he's not behaving the way that he used to um what i love about this book is it really introduces so many important themes right now for children and it introduces a lot of the things that are happening in the world right now without ever being overbearing or pushy or overtly political. Mm-hmm. It's just introducing kids to another normal kid like them who happens to come from an immigrant family, which I think is great. Yeah, I think that that's a great way to do it. I love it. Okay. Other ones? Um, I think there is a trend. I don't even want to call it a trend, but there's a movement toward, um, like Carolyn was saying, being inclusive in ways that are natural, yeah. telling stories, especially with the own voices movement, telling stories in just everyday terms, um, instead of them being these big 
um, movement books. Um, so I have started reading some from um, Sandia Menon, who writes um, from the perspective of Indian American kids, um, children of immigrants, but they're just cute teenage rom-coms. So hers are a lot of fun. She has one that came out this year from Twinkle with Love that's about a girl who wants to become a film director um, and has a cute love story. But she, you also get in a very natural way, her experiences as the child of immigrants. Um, and I think that's a really neat thing. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. definitely. I, I love that trend too. Just mm-hmm. bringing it more in an authentic way. It's mm-hmm. not preachy or, you know, it's mm-hmm. just like, this is normal life. <laughs> mm-hmm. I love it. Good stuff. All right. We're getting up to the end here. So a couple more. Let's Let's hear it. I think kind of on the opposite end of that um, diversity and inclusiveness, um, another Newbery honor from this year, which I really loved, is The Night Diary. Um, it's Vera Hiranandani. Mm, sorry. That's, it's a tricky one to say. Yeah. <laughs> syllables. I'm so sorry. Um, but it's really interesting. It's all about the India partition, um, the India-Palestinian partition, which as an adult reader, I was embarrassed to not know a lot about. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's wonderful that we have books written for children from a child's point of view about these really messy periods in history to help them kind of approach them empathetic, empathetically, which I think is great. Which, which is tricky. They're our history is not clean and pretty. No, and, not at all. In all around the world. And being able to have these kinds of books that really talk about that, I think mm-hmm. you're right. It and just don't shy needs, away from things. Yeah, we we and we need to learn about it. Like mm-hmm. you said, there's certain things I read in books like that. And I think, oh, wow, I should have known about this a long yes. time ago. Absolutely. <laughs> a long time ago. Yeah. Another one I love this year was Circe by Madeline Miller. Did That's you read Circe? Well. Mm-hmm. Um, that book is so great. And it's another one where I feel like it's a good introduction to mythology. A lot of these stories that are familiar um, but expanded upon in beautiful, absolutely beautiful writing. Um, I just love that you can learn so much from reading and in a way that's that doesn't feel like you're being taught in a class. You can just read it and experience it in a more real way. Yeah. So, hey, listeners out there, you got a great long list from some of our librarians for your own personal 2018 best books from the Provo City Library experience. So run on out, check it out. Expand your horizons. Thank you so much, ladies. Appreciate it. Of course. We've had a great show. First, we talked with author Martha Brokenbrow about her new book, Unprecedented. Then we spoke with poet and professor Gina Clark about the importance and practicality of sharing poetry. Our last guest was author and professor Jonathan Alexander, and we talked about our passion for young adult literature. If you missed any of today's show, or if you want to listen to it again, you can find it on the BYU Radio app or at byuradio.org, as well as on most podcast apps and websites. If you want to know more about what we do here at Worlds Awaiting, feel free to follow our Instagram at Worlds Awaiting. This has been a production of BYU Radio. Our producer is Cole Wissinger, our student production assistant is Natalie Anderson, and our technical advisor is Braden Flint. I'm Rachel Wadham, looking forward to the worlds that are waiting next week. Thank you for exploring with us.